Good morning, everyone. We're going to celebrate communion at the end of the service. We're going to let Solomon take us there, and uh, hopefully that will bring some meaning and purpose into why we do it every, every month. As you recall, last week we began a journey with King Solomon. We embarked upon a search for answers. As we talked about, he writes Ecclesiastes, looking back at everything that he's learned during his lifetime. He makes the conclusion early in the beginning of Ecclesiastes by summarizing his findings this way. This is meaningless. It's meaningless. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Solomon admits there are no satisfying answers for life in this world. No matter what the world has to offer, it just seems like everything it offers just leaves us longing for something more. And now, in order to validate this conclusion that he makes right at the beginning, he's going to give the evidence. And he's going to do it kind of one subject at a time, and he's going to begin with what he knows better than anyone else. This is his area of expertise. It's an ability to look for answers through logic, finding solutions through his vast intellect, his unmatched wisdom. In fact, if there's anybody in the history of the world who would be able to find a formula to make life work, it's Solomon. Let me tell you why. Go to 1 Kings, before we look into Solomon, go back to 1 Kings chapter 3. So if you're in Ecclesiastes, just go left. Past First and Second Chronicles into First and Second Kings. I want you to begin reading with me in First Kings chapter three, verse six. This is where we see the origin of Solomon's wisdom. This is how he became the wisest man who has or ever will live upon the face of the earth. And this is the account that describes that. So beginning in verse six. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father. This is his prayer, by the way. So he's speaking to God. You, God, have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father. According as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him to this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is This day, Solomon is that son. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Solomon is admitting, I don't know which way is up. I don't know where to begin. I'm in charge of this people that you have called, and I'm not sure what to do. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for a life free from your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, 
I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. I have also given you all that you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will be not any among the kings like you in all your days. That's the origin. Solomon was divinely endowed with the gift of wisdom. And he employed that wisdom to become exceedingly prosperous. Solomon experienced worldly success on a multitude of levels. For example, he was a master builder. Larry, you'll appreciate this. He was a master builder. He left his footprint on society, on the world, on history. Many of you know his greatest accomplishment was the temple in Jerusalem, right? Where he moved massive stones, many of which exist still today. He moved these massive cedar beams and he overlaid most of it with gold to the point that by most estimates, the temple were it to exist today in our economy would be worth three to six billion, with a B, billion dollars. And that was just one of many of his architectural wonders. But not only was he a master builder, he was a political genius. Solomon expanded the borders of Israel to historical proportions. In fact, they have not moved beyond the reach of Solomon since his day. It is the watermark for what has existed in Israel's expansion. And what's interesting about that is he did it without any major military campaigns. Not by force. Now, he had massive military strongholds all throughout Israel, but he rarely had to employ them. And the reason was his success was based on forming alliances and capitalizing on commerce. As many of you know, Israel is a land bridge in between continents on the north, Asia and other countries to the north, and then you have to the south, Egypt and and Africa, and in between those is Israel. And all the major trade routes that existed at that time passed through the land bridge of Israel. So Solomon, in his wisdom, taxed those routes. So every time somebody came and went, they paid Israel. Not only that, he imported tons of goods that nobody else could get access to that he traded when they came through his territory. Not only did he control what was on land, he did the very same thing in the sea. So all that existed in the Mediterranean for the very same purpose was handled in the very same way. His wisdom and success and prosperity became a worldwide phenomenon. In fact, turn over, since you're in 1 Kings, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 10. We'll look at one of the examples of where that was evident. So, 1 Kings chapter 10. Remember, he has this worldwide popularity because of success. success, And it says in chapter 10, verse 1, Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, there it is, concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him, with difficult questions. If he's wise, we're going to find out how wise he really is. Verse 2. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large... What is that word? Retinue. 
she came with a very large uh, complement of goods and services and things that she had been successful in as she approached this very wise man. She was going to make an impression on the man who's made an impression on the world. Which she had camels, spices, very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba received all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food that was at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in their attire, his cupbearers, his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. Then she said to the king, it was a true report, which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. In other words, they didn't tell me nearly what you were able to do. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I'd heard. How blessed are you, are your men? How blessed are those, are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. If there is anybody, get this, if there is anybody in the history of the world who has a formula to make life work, it's going to be Solomon. And so early in his life, he set out on a quest. He was going to find that formula. He was going to find what real meaning and purpose in this life is all about. In the book of Ecclesiastes, is his research report. It's his conclusions. It's his findings when he investigated all that the world had to offer. And that's what we're going to walk through together. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, we want to do so humbly. Unlike Solomon, we don't have the same magnitude of wisdom. We don't have the same knowledge and understanding. There's a lot that we don't know. And so we're going to turn to your word, that place where we find truth. We're going to learn from Solomon, your servant, and what he teaches us about your truth. And we're going to ask, Lord, that you use this in a powerful and significant way in our lives. Help us see some truths that can't be found in this world. Truths that ultimately have to come from you. And so, Lord, would you lead us there as we look at your word this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, flip over to the right side now and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off last. Um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And if you will, begin reading with me in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So Solomon revisits this idea of koaleth, that Hebrew word that means preacher. But he tells us that not only is he a preacher, he's also a king. Which is important because it means that he has all kinds of power to employ his wisdom. 
He's got all kinds of, of resources, an unlimited supply, as we heard from the Queen of Sheba, to find the answers that he's looking for. His teaching is based on his personal experience where life is his laboratory. It's kind of like the Tony Stark of his day. Now, I'm saying that with great risk because the students are gone and nobody knows who Tony Stark is. Who's, who's Tony Stark? Iron Man, all right? And if you know anything about the Marvel series, he is a genius in research and development. Everything that he's done is based on his unmatched wisdom and intellect. Well, that was Solomon. Except Solomon was a lot smarter than Tony Stark ever was. And so Solomon is kind of this renaissance man who was on a mission, a mission to, ex to seek and explore the meaning of life. In the end, he was on a quest for truth. And wisdom was his secret weapon. Now, it's important to know that the word for wisdom used here in our passage is hakma. It's a Hebrew word, hakma. And that's an important distinction because that Hebrew word is intended to describe a knowledge that is possessed outside of divine revelation from God. So this is Solomon's unique gifting to live successfully in this world. It's a knowledge and an understanding that's outside of any special revelation from God. So man's highest abilities within the life and mind of King Solomon. And from what we know about Solomon, we know he had a lot of hakma and a lot of wisdom, none before him and none after him. Solomon was committed to a lifetime, a lifetime of research and discovery. It was an intellectual pursuit to solve some of life's greatest mysteries, things like, what on earth am I here for? Why am I here? What's the meaning and purpose of life? And it didn't take Solomon very long in this effort to research and understand to realize this was going to be frustrating. This was not going to be an easy pursuit. This was filled with difficulty. In fact, he says, it's a grievous task. And I want you to notice that he says that the, the grievous task was actually given to us by God. He, he, he said that we're afflicted with this task. It's like a disease that we have in common. A, a shared desire implanted within all of us to look for answers. So much so that even people who deny God's existence, even people who don't believe in God at all, still look for meaning in their own existence, apart from God. There's something inside all of us that wants to understand our place in this world. It's a common pursuit to find the secret to a fulfilling life. We see that even in our world today. In fact... It's written in the American Constitution. You believe it? It's there. In fact, let me remind you. We say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, or as Solomon would say, ordained by God. 
with certain unalienable rights. And so this is common among all men, shared by every person. Solomon would say it's that shared desire that we all have in common. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There it is. That is Solomon's quest. A quest to a happy and fulfilling life. Like we learned last week, there is nothing new under the sun. This is not just isolated to the American dream. This is a shared desire implanted into the hearts of all mankind. This is Solomon's pursuit. And it's always existed since the world began. Look how he continues in verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And striving after the wind, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Remember, Solomon is looking back. He's looking back on a lifetime journey. He's considering his quest for truth, his search for meaning. But his assessment, it is not just isolated to his own experience. He says he's, he's looked at all the works that have been done under the sun. So not only his own experience, but the experience of other people. So what that tells us is that Solomon was a student of humanity, looking at the hearts of all mankind, and yet not even this collective supply of worldly wisdom could overcome the cycle of futility. Mankind's search for a fulfilling life is always met with frustration. Solomon describes it as striving after wind, chasing after wind, which I don't know about you, but I think that's a great illustration because it gives you this mental picture of the insanity of what that would be like. Striving after something that we know without a doubt exists. When you walk out of this building, you're going to see the wind move the leaves and the trees. You're going to feel the wind as it brushes against your skin. You're going to know that the wind exists, but go ahead and grab it. Take a hold of it. Get a big chunk of it. Evaluate it. See what it looks like. See what it's all about, and you'll find yourself with futility. <laughs> we often think that we can find it in our lives. See, the wind is an undeniable reality that cannot be grasped just like that seed implanted into the hearts of all mankind is an undeniable reality in our lives. We all possess a longing to learn, a desire for answers. We are all on this search for a happy and fulfilling life. But it cannot be grasped. It's like grasping after the wind, striving, chasing after the wind. After all, we think many times that if we just had a new job, if we just had a new relationship, if we just took this, had this new purchase, this new thing, this new gadget, then it would change my life. It would settle my soul. It would calm my fears. Maybe, maybe it does for a moment, but we all know it just doesn't last. Our efforts to find fulfillment in this world keep being interrupted with frustration. To the point that, that even good things are met with frustration. Marriage is a good thing. <laughs> but if you've been married very long, you know 
It's not easy. There are struggles and challenges and difficulties along the way. Family, completely wonderful, tremendous blessing. But if you've raised a family, you know it is filled with grief, hurt, pain. Amidst all the good things in life, there's this ever-present reality of suffering and difficulty. To the point that Solomon concludes, what is crooked cannot be made straight. In other words, there are things in this life that are bent out of shape and they cannot be fixed. Our world is filled with broken people and we cannot break free. And I don't know about you, but the reports of things that happened just yesterday bring that really, really close to home. My heart breaks for the victims and their families in Odessa, Texas, two hours south of us. My heart breaks for the victims and their families in El Paso, Texas, right here in West Texas. I was reminded this morning as I learned about this for the first time that in the month of August alone, there were over 51 people killed through mass shootings in the United States. One month. Do we need any more evidence that this world is broken and it's filled with broken people and it cannot be fixed? This is what Solomon is trying to help us understand. And the reason it's broken is because of sin. That is the affliction that he speaks of. That is the affliction that we all have in common. Sin is what takes a virtue like love and reshapes and bends it into lust. Sin is what transforms our drive and determination and bends it into greed. Sin is what takes that pursuit of happiness and turns it into jealousy when someone else has something that you want. We live in a sin-cursed world and we cannot break free. And no matter how much we labor, no matter how much we learn, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Do you get that? What is crooked cannot be made straight. The curse of sin cannot be overcome by the efforts of man, no matter how much we learn or wisdom that we employ to solve the problem. As Solomon teaches, you cannot count everything if something is missing. Think about that. That's a profound thought, right? You can't count everything if something is missing. You see, mankind is created with limitations, and yet we strive for perfection. Talk about an exercise in futility. Mankind is created with limitations, and yet we strive for perfection. There's this void within all of us, and nothing in this world will ever, ever, ever make us complete. It may promise to satisfy, but I can assure you it will only leave you longing for something more. That's why Solomon is saying, Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. You're not going to find the answer under the sun. It's missing in this world. 
Look at how he continues in verse 16. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I've set my mind to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I realize that this is also striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Remember, if anybody's going to be able to find the answer, it's going to be Solomon. His wisdom ordained by God was unmatched by anybody before him and anybody that would come after him. And not only was it the experience of his own personal life, but his evaluation of humanity in general, the lives of other people as well. And one of Solomon's strategies for learning, as we see in this passage, is a study in contrasts. Learning not only from what went right, but what went wrong. That's why he says, I've, I've learned from both wisdom and folly. Knowing that some of the best lessons that we learn in life are from the mistakes that we make. So Solomon studied both the good decisions and the bad decisions, both in his life and in the lives of other people. But either way, he came to the same conclusion. The world is broken, and it cannot be fixed. That search for fulfillment is filled with frustration. The bottom line, humanity is plagued with an affliction, a curse of sin. And it cannot break free. No matter how much we try, technology will not solve by giving us the answers. Medicine will not solve by giving us the cures. Psychology will not solve by explaining the way the human mind works. There is no political solution that exists in this world that will solve the problem of sin. The world is bent it is crooked, and it cannot be made straight. And even now, we hear those words, and there's a part of us that I think even in my own heart says, but really? I mean, just think of how far we've come, all the advances that have taken place in, in history and all the, the discoveries that are, are yet to come, but then I have to stop and remind myself, like we did last week when we said, do we really believe do we really believe that one day we will break the cycle of futility? A day when all our questions will be answered. A day when all our problems will be solved. A day when all our labor produces a satisfying result and we take this weary struggle away. Do you really believe that you have the cure for the curse of sin? Because at the end of the day, that's the problem. That's the affliction. That's what we all share in common. Solomon believes that the discovery does not exist under the sun. He's trying to find an answer. And he says it's striving after the wind. It's a frustration. It's an exercise in futility that yields, as he says, more grief than it does gain. Because the more you learn, the more you realize how much you really don't know. That's why people say ignorance is bliss. That's a true statement. Solomon is saying just the opposite. Knowledge is pain. Because the further you dig inside your search for discovery, for answers, 
in this world, the darker that cave becomes. And I really believe this can apply to both Christians and non-Christians alike. And let me explain. Christians very often are some of the most guilty people looking for a formula to make life work. We read books, we develop strategies. Most of the people who walk into a church are people who are looking for answers. That may be why you're here this morning. We're looking for the answer for a, a better marriage. Looking for the answer for a better family. Maybe you agree with Solomon that this world is filled with broken people because honestly, you're one of them. Just like me. So like I said, we, we read books, we, we develop strategies, we try to eliminate the struggles in life, but maybe, just consider for the moment, maybe, maybe we can never take the struggle away. We just got to find the sufficiency of God in the midst of it. Maybe the goal isn't to make all that is crooked straight. Maybe the goal is to find the answer beyond the sun. You see, Solomon is actually trying to help us. I know it doesn't sound like it at this point, but trust me, he's trying to help us. And the reason he's trying to help us, or the way he's trying to help us, is by narrowing our search. His conclusion is clear. You will not find the answer that your heart longs for most under the sun. You will not find it within the boundaries of this world. It does not exist. No matter how smart or intellectual you may be, it's like chasing after the wind. Some of you may remember back in 2007, there was a, a band, actually my favorite band of all times, U2, who came out with a song that was wildly popular at the time. Whether you enjoyed that genre of music or not, it was something that seems to have resonated with the masses. It was a song entitled, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Remember that? In that song, the lead singer Bono professes a belief in a coming kingdom when all the colors bleed into one, as he says. A belief he professes in the one who broke the bonds, loosened the chains, the one who carried the cross and all my shame. He says, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That song was popular because I think for many of us, it's telling our story. And quite frankly, it's pointing to Solomon's search for answers. But this morning, I want to give you a glimpse of where I believe the answer does exist. It's not within the boundaries of this world. You have to look beyond the sun. And we're going to get another glimpse of that this morning, and we're going to tie it to our celebration of communion together. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because I believe that Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, helps answer this question for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 22. Paul begins by saying, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. To understand this verse, we really need to fast forward from the time of Solomon 
to the time of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the time after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because even then, just like in Solomon's day, people are still looking for answers as they are even now. And he says that the Jews were looking for a sign. Specifically, they were looking for a sign of the coming Messiah. Because they believed in a Messiah that would come to restore the nation of Israel. He would release them from the political bondage that they experienced under the thumb of Rome. To put them in a place of power. A place of freedom. And once that happened, they were looking for a sign because once that happened, their life would be fulfilled. Do you hear it? The Greeks didn't believe in God. So they looked for answers through wisdom. Much like Solomon, they were looking through for fulfillment in what they could learn. Like us, they were exercising that right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews because he did not meet their expectations. They could not accept a crucified Messiah because they didn't recognize the problem of sin in their own heart. As for the Gentiles, the whole concept of a Savior was foolishness. It was meaningless. Why would you need a Savior if you're doing just fine on your own? So look at how he continues in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and here it is, the wisdom of God. Faith is where the answer is found. Jesus is where the wisdom of God that does not exist within the limits of this world is ultimately revealed. Jesus is the only soul-satisfying answer to the world's biggest problem. He brought divine wisdom in our broken world, and He alone has the power to rescue us from sin's curse. That's the common affliction. That's the ultimate answer. So as we celebrate communion this morning, I want you to put your focus on the cross and what ultimately was accomplished. The place where the wisdom of God was revealed. The cross is ultimately where our brokenness is healed. Okay? We live in a broken world. We are all broken people. And we will not find the solution to our problems inside the boundaries of this world. If you are broken like me and you want to be healed, then Jesus is your only answer. It is the only place where that curse of sin, that affliction that we all have in common, is ultimately healed. The cross is the only place where we find forgiveness. That's why Paul says the cross is where I boast. Not because of what I've done. Not because of what I've found. Not because of what I've discovered. It's because of what he's done. It's because if he's found me, it's because he's revealed to me who I am in his eyes. The secret to a fulfilling life is not a formula. It's a person. And our lives will never be complete until we are satisfied with Christ alone. So when we come to the table this morning, that's what we're recognizing. When you take the bread and you take the cup, you are saying, 
This is all I need. This is the answer. This is what my heart longs for most. And if I want to live a fulfilling life in a broken world, I have to believe in Jesus. Let's pray as the men come forward and we'll take communion together. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that we do in fact live in a sinful and broken world. And we are part of the problem because we too share in that affliction that is common to all mankind, the affliction of sin. And Lord, we cannot solve that problem. We do not possess an answer to a soul-satisfying security within the limits and boundaries of this world. Jesus, we need you. We need you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus, you are the answer. You heal our brokenness. You forgive our sins. So as we come to the table this morning, we recognize that that wisdom that we do not possess was revealed through you. So that through you, we understand what on earth we're here for. We understand the value and purpose through which we were created. And that is the only place that we will ultimately be fulfilled. So may we come to the table rejoicing in what you've accomplished. And we pray this in your name. Amen. you listen to how Paul continues writing to the Corinthians based on what we've already looked at. He goes on and says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you once were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. He goes on and says, It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. He explains that wisdom when he says, That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You did not discover the power of Christ and the work of redemption because of what you did to raise yourself up and, and accomplish something in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own power. You found it when you humbled yourself, bowed low before the righteousness of God, and He lifted you up. There's a passage that we looked at last week that said that we humble ourselves before a holy God, and He exalts us with His loving kindness. And I have in my mind this picture of bowing in reverence and awe before the holiness of God and Him reaching down and lifting up and saying, you belong to me. And so when you take the bread this morning, realize that it was humility, it was submission, it was surrender as the path of being rescued by the sovereignty and forgiveness and grace of God through faith in Christ alone. Take this and remember that.
Paul goes on and reminds them that when he came to them, he didn't come with some special eloquence or superior wisdom. He says, I came and preached crucified Christ alone. I've determined to know nothing, he said, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes on and says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. What was that demonstration? The demonstration of the Spirit's power was his transformed life. A man who was bent on destroying the church became the world's greatest church planter. That's the Spirit's power. We do, however, speak the message of wisdom among the mature, but not wisdom of this age. Get that? Not wisdom that exists in the boundaries of this world or by its rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. They come and they go. Remember, generations come, generations go. But the world remains forever. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for they had, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Forever, however, it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So as you take the cup this morning and you're reminded of what it represents, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. Here's what it tells you. Your search is over. When you have found Jesus, you have found the answer to life that is fulfilling even in a broken world and a hope of eternity where all is made right. So when you take the cup this morning, you rejoice in that promise fulfilled and live daily in its truth. Amen? The gift of your goodness, the hope of salvation. Lord, thank you that we're still not on that quest looking for answers because if we found you, we found what our heart longs for most. And so help us live in that truth, even in the midst of a broken world. Help us understand that our goal is not to take away the struggle, but to find your sufficiency in the midst of it. Lord, we trust you. You are faithful. And so we ask that we might live there more often. A lot of times people look at the book of Ecclesiastes and say, gosh, what a depressing book. But I want you to know he's doing us a favor. He's searching throughout the world to look for answers that satisfy our soul. And he's telling us it's not there. You can eliminate that. And he's pointing us to the one place where the answer can be found. And we know as believers in Jesus Christ that it was ultimately fulfilled in him. And I hope that you're encouraged this morning that you don't come to a place of redemption because of what you achieve or how much you know or what you've accomplished. Get there through humble surrender, through a trust in what he's done that you could have never done on your own. So let me encourage you this week as you go throughout the week that instead of looking for answers to solve problems, you spend your time being loved at the feet of Jesus. Go sit in his presence. Go spend time in his word. And let his truth wash over you with healing and comfort in ways that nothing else in this world could ever accomplish. So if you'll do that, you have applied what we've learned today in the best way possible. So let me encourage you to do that this week. Amen.
you are dismissed. Have a great week.